reaction. You realize that your reaction was identical to your parent, your mom, and your dad. You go, oh my goodness, I've become my father. Oh no. It's kind of a frightening moment. It is true that our parents have a great deal of influence over who we are and what we become. But that probably is not a complete, maybe in some ways, it's a minuscule portion of who we are. I've read to you a book out of the past. Um, it's a great one. I won't spend time reading it right now, but I love it. It is quick as a cricket. And this wonderful little boy that uh, Audrey Wood talks about describes himself as uh, many different animals. He says, I'm as slow as a snail, I'm as small as an ant, I'm as large as a whale, I'm as sad as a basset, I'm as happy as a lark, I'm as nice as a bunny, I'm as mean as a shark. And when you come to the end of this book, the wonderful conclusion is that all of these animals and their attributes describe the little boy, you put them all together and you've got me. It's an interesting notion of all the different parts an individual that comprises who you are, who I am. Some people would say that we are our experiences, that we are the circumstances of our day. We are the experiences that we've had in our past, and somehow those experiences have molded us and created in us the person that we've become. Some of us are incredibly influenced by the circumstances of this very day and find ourselves reflecting how this day has gone. Our demeanor, our countenance, our posture sometimes reflect how this day has progressed. For me, the great example of that is the classic piece of literature that many of you have in your library. Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I made reference to this one other time. If you are very familiar with this story, just sit back and let uh, all the warm fuzzies that have been read to as a child or reading to a child flood over you. If you've never heard this story before, my privilege to share at least a portion of it with you. The story of young Alexander, who begins the story by reflecting on what happened the night before he woke up. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth. And now there's gum in my hair. When I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I got my sweater in the sink while the water was running. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box. Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. In the carpool, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window, too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be car sick. No one even answered. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At school, Mrs. Dickens liked Paul's picture of the sailboat better than my picture of the invisible castle. At singing time, she said, I sang too loud. At counting time, she said, I left out 16. Who needs 16 anyway? I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I could tell because Paul said I wasn't his best friend anymore. He said that Philip Parker was his best friend and that Albert Moyo was his 
circumstances, defined by how today worked or didn't work, how I did or didn't do, defined by the way in which this day plays out, and convinced that in some ways Paul, in chapter 7 of the book of Romans, is addressing that very issue. You may remember we have spent a couple of weeks in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 has this kind of powerful, kind of, it is a powerful um, proclamation that we are no longer slaves to sin. We've been set free because we've been baptized into Christ's death. We were buried together with Christ. And just like the power of the resurrection happened in Jesus, we are given that same kind of power to live our life. It's the promise of Romans chapter 6. And it comes really as an expression of what Paul says is the theme of this entire letter. You find it in Romans chapter 1 where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the 
things I want to do, but I don't end up doing things I don't want to do, that I end up finding myself engaged in. This battle that goes back and forth. It feels like the glorious promise of chapter 6 has somehow taken a wrong turn and I'm back to square one or maybe even further back than that. But that's not really the case at all. It seems that Paul, this is the only place he does it, but certainly here, moves into this wonderful pastoral caring, I'm a friend on the journey with you mode. He wants to acknowledge what it's really like to try and live out the life of faith. He wants to say, I am pretty certain you're experiencing this. I want you to know that I've experienced it as well. In fact, this chapter gets very, very personal. It's as if, beginning right in the middle of the chapter, Paul begins to include himself in the storyline with both personal pronouns and then inclusive pronouns as well. Using I and we throughout this whole chapter. Paul, it seems in some ways being confessional about his own spiritual journey. And, And so, if we look closely at this, we recognize from Paul's writings and probably our experience that the battle changes. This letter is certainly a letter that gives great teaching for those who are not believers. But it appears as if the audience is primarily those who have begun the journey of following Christ. To the non-believer, the battle is really with God. Sometimes it won't be expressed explicitly that way. Sometimes it's pushing against circumstances that seem to be against me. Or some kind of force that never lets me get ahead. Or trying to achieve the things that I want to achieve and have to fight against those things that keep me from getting to my goals. Spiritually speaking, there is a battle that rages with God where I try to push God away or out of my life or to not be bothered with those things that would get in the way of me doing what I want to do. The battle really is with God. But once someone decides to allow God to direct his or her life, invites Christ into the position of lordship, the battle is no longer with God. Battle now is with sin. In a variety of ways. The influence on our world, the influence on our culture, the way in which evil inclinations have affected myself, my patterns, my growing up, my experiences, and the world in which I live. The battle has simply changed. So in chapter 7, Paul speaks about this new battle. One of the things that we face, that we often do, and that is posed by some people is, what do we do with sin? 
wrestles with it, engages it, tackles it head on. We are often told different ways by which we can deal with sin. Sometimes we're taught how to cope with it. How you cope with those things that are wrong and leading you in directions that are unhealthy or unhelpful. Coping is not what Paul does at all. Paul doesn't call us to cope with sin. He calls us to address it, to confront it, to wrestle with it, to take it to God, to talk to God about what these struggles are. Sometimes we redefine sin. We take sin and we explain it, because if we can explain it, we can kind of put it in a box. And if we can put it in a box, we can manage it. So we will explain it by genetic patterns. We'll explain it by parental influence. We'll explain it by family of origin. We'll explain it by psychological models that help us to put handles on this thing called sin. And so instead of addressing it, we manage it. Or sometimes what we do is sin. We simply replace those things that are unacceptable with things that are more acceptable. So we've learned that certain sins don't sit very well with our culture and will cause us to end up in jail. So we avoid those kinds of sins but we engage in others that are acceptable in our culture, but are not necessarily acceptable in the kingdom of God. Because there are some directions that may not be acceptable to the kingdom of God, but would get us appointed as king. Because of those certain choices we make that become acceptable in a setting, but don't necessarily reflect the kingdom of God. So we've simply exchanged one outlet for our patterns for others that look and feel a lot better in a group setting. I'll probably even be accepted by some of the groups in which in the circles that I walk. But that doesn't mean that my behavior is right. And this issue is equally true for us in groups. This is not just an individual admonition. We come together as a body of believers. It's very possible if we are not vigilant about that from which we've been saved. Vigilant about what it means to be purveyors of the kingdom of heaven. That we can, sometimes inadvertently, but make our community worse, not better. Affect our world in negative ways. Instead of changing our world for the good. Paul here is obsessed with what it took for Christ to redeem him. He acknowledges his own sinfulness. I do a much better job at explaining it away, redefining it coping with it, rechanneling it, Paul acknowledges it and describes what happens when you are engaged in this issue with sin. It is moving into the realization of what Christ has done and knowing 
I'm sorry to picking on you. It should have been cleared ahead of time, but I see back to my left one of my good friends, my good friend Thomas, who has, within the last few months, undergone incredibly difficult surgery. He's a walking miracle in my book, and I just, he's a man of prayer, and he's called me to a greater life of prayer, and I'm so glad that God has allowed you to continue to be in my life and to keep calling me in that direction. When that surgery took place, well, actually spanned several days of surgeries. The next day, Thomas was not back at full force. A week later, he was not doing all the work he'd done in the months prior. The truth of the matter was that the surgery deep inside his brain was successful. It worked. The doctor was pleased. Everything went the way it was supposed to go. But that doesn't mean that the next day, Thomas was back to full force. There was a battle that had to be engaged, a battle of rehabilitation and work and effort to try and make all of the things come together to bring about the completion of what was already done weeks before. Bill O'Brien tells a wonderful story, a story that took place at the end of World War II. A prison camp in Germany was comprised mostly of American and British soldiers, this particular one was. And right down the middle of the camp was a large, tall, barbed wire fence that separated the American prisoners from the British prisoners. They weren't allowed to congregate at the, front, at the fence. They weren't allowed to converse. The guards kept watch over the fence. But they did allow, one time a day, the chaplain of the British troops and the chaplain of the American troops to meet at the fence exchange some comments, always under the watchful eye of the German guards. And they went back to their respective barracks. And life carried on. Communication was not very good. In fact, the communication to the Germans who were in charge had broken down completely. Somehow the American troops had pieced together from a few spare parts a small little radio on which they would periodically get news. 
this was of great importance to prisoners. And so very often the conversation at the fence was the American chaplain telling the British chaplain that some of the latest news and he would take it back to barracks and share with them. One particular day the news came across the radio that the um, German command had surrendered. The American troops cheered. Later that day, the American chaplain went to the fence and met the British chaplain. The German guards had no idea what was going on because they had no communication access. He shared the news, and he lingered at the fence to wait as the British chaplain went back to the barracks, and he got to hear the cheers that went up in the British barracks. For the next three days, continued life as usual, except it wasn't as usual. The German guards didn't know anything had taken place, but the soldiers, they were smiling, they were laughing, they were smirking at the vicious guard dogs that were there to intimidate them. They were greeting one another in ways they'd never greeted one another before. Even though everything was still locked, everything had changed. On the fourth day, they woke up to find no guards around, and they had fled into the woods, and the gates were wide open, and they left for prison. The truth happened three days prior. The freedom actually was experienced inwardly, but it took a while before the outward circumstances matched the inward reality. That's God's grace. When we begin to surrender to what Christ has accomplished, we then find that the outward circumstances begin to shift to match the inward truth of what God has done. So with that as the context, once again to what Paul was trying to communicate both of his own journey and for the people in Rome. So what shall we say? Is the law sin? Certainly not. For I would not have even known what sin was apart from the law. I wouldn't have known that I shouldn't covet. If I heard, hadn't heard the command, do not covet. But sin, taking the opportunity that came by the law, caused every kind of covetous desire to rise up within me. Apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive, apart from the law, but then the commandment came. When the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. The very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought about death. For sin took the opportunity that came because of the commandment, and it deceived me. 
by no means. Sin had to be seen for what it was, sin. So, through the commandment, death was produced in me so that sin could become utterly sinful, detestable. Because you see, the law is spiritual. I am unspiritual. So is a slave to sin. So that I don't even understand what I do. That which I want to do, I don't do. And the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. So I find if I'm doing what I do not want to do, I have to agree that the law itself is good. But as for me, it's not me that's doing it, it's the sin that has taken root in me. I'm convinced that there's nothing good inside of me, at least in my flesh. Because the things that I want to do that are good, I never seem to be able to accomplish them. For the good I want to do, I don't do. But the evil stuff keeps showing up. So if I'm doing those things that I don't want to do, once again, it's sin that's doing this inside of me. Because here's the thing. I find that there's a law at work inside of me. That when I'm intending to do good, it's always like there's evil right there with me. In my inmost being, I delight in the law of God. But there's a law at work in my flesh that's waging war against the law of my mind. And it keeps me prisoner to this law of sin and death. What a wretched person I am. Who's going to save me from this body of death? Romans 7, 25. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the truth. The truth that sets me free. There may still be some chain gates. There may still be some barbed wire fences. The truth is that they're opening up. The barriers are falling down. That which has kept me bound is not the truth. The truth is that through Jesus Christ our Lord, God has sent. battle is real. Paul says, I know it. I know what it feels like to live in a place where sin is no longer in control, but sin is still present. And in the midst of that presence, it calls us to be vigilant, to be careful, to be alert, and to recognize the truth that needs to be confessed. Jesus Christ is Lord, and God's grace sets this morning to a table where we celebrate that. Where we celebrate 